I'm CK McDonnell, and welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 3 of the Stranger Times podcast. This week, on this definitely not supposed to be topical podcast, we have a short story that is weirdly topical. But before we get to that, here is the evergreen James Cook with the Stranger Times news. A new ghost is roaming the halls of Britain's most haunted building. Visitors to the ghost tour at the Full Staff pub in Stratford-upon-Avon are seeing visions of a teenage girl who tuts loudly and looks bored. One tour member said, The guide was telling us a story when I noticed the girl beside me was playing Candy Crush on her phone. I asked her to put it away, but she just pulled a face and said, This is rubbish, I didn't even want to come here. And then she disappeared through a wall. Local experts have suggested it might be the ghost of Tamara Bentley, who when last seen had claimed to be dying of boredom. Witnesses have confirmed that even when alive, she was a real drag. Meanwhile, in other supernatural Shakespeare news, the Globe Theatre in London is being overrun with the ghosts of monkeys with typewriters. Caretaker James Merchant said, It's an absolute nightmare, raising serious questions as to how Big Willie's works were created, and more importantly, we can't figure out how the ethereal monkeys have found real poo to throw around, but they definitely have. I'm James Cook, and to find out more about these stories, go to thestrangertimes.com. Finally, this week's forecast. In the year 2037, scientists will have figured out a way to read the minds of dogs, It will backfire horribly when we discover that they are massive racists. Thank you, James. So yes, as I mentioned, this not at all topical podcast is this week weirdly topical. As I record this intro, it is Monday the 16th of November 2020, or the 200th day of March, depending on how bad your lockdown has been. And a couple of days ago, a man called Dominic Cummings resigned from his role as unelected advisor to the British government. If you're from Britain or Ireland, then you'll undoubtedly know who the man is. But for any Americans or for anyone from elsewhere, uh, basically think of him as like the British Steve Bannon. Um, to be fair, the actual British government has actually received a lot of advice from the actual Steve Bannon. So to be more accurate, Steve Bannon is Britain's Steve Bannon. But you get the general idea. Dominic Cummings was a divisive figure for many, many reasons. And then, in the middle of a national lockdown due to a pandemic, he decided to bum his family in the car and drive several hundred miles, as he believed the rules didn't apply to him. Incredibly, he managed to survive that scandal, only to lose his job because he fell out with the Prime Minister's fiancée. When you think about it, it's a love story. Boy meets Machiavellian genius, Machiavellian genius gets boy elected, Boy meets girl, has to be said, one of numerous girls boy has met in the biblical sense over the years, often one invariably already in a relationship with another girl, resulting in boy fathering undisclosed number of children. Boy proposes the current girl. Boy definitely doesn't do so after being caught having yet another affair. At this point, if you're wondering how boy finds time to govern, well, he has Machiavellian genius for that. But, plot twist, boy fires Machiavellian genius to keep girl happy as he can't afford to keep paying any more child support. Machiavellian genius is inevitably going to sign a big book deal where he takes down Boy with embarrassing revelations, assuming his own party hasn't done so already by that time. Boy eventually resigns to spend more time with his and presumably other people's partners, plus his undisclosed number of children. Boy goes back to getting paid big books to make racist remarks in the press and they all live happily ever after. See? A love story. Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are already interested in the movie. Now, this week's short story, entitled Yes, Prime Minister, is not about that. I actually wrote it months ago. 
You see, the fictitious world of Stranger Times looks a lot like the one you and I currently inhabit, at least on the surface. However, unbeknownst to muggles like us, magic and much more does exist, but is hidden from the general public. In fact, there are sinister figures in the shadows who, for their own selfish reasons, want to make sure the general population are none the wiser to the true nature of the world. It therefore stands to reason that they would exert influence at the very highest levels to make sure that doesn't happen. This story is me wondering what kind of form that would take. It therefore features a genuinely fictitious, unelected advisor trying to deal with them. Now, here's the thing. Loads of people will tell you that authors should stay out of politics, as it all it'll do is wind up certain people and lose your readers. Thing is, as of now, I've written 10 novels and a shed load of short stories. Inevitably, you do end up touching on stuff in that sphere. None of my books are political, but at the same time, if you've read them, I'm guessing you could guess my leanings. I'm a massive fan of Terry Pratchett and Chris Brookmeyer, to name two authors. And as a keen fan, I reckon I could score pretty highly on a quiz of their political beliefs. It's inevitable. Either you want authors to write with true passion, which will occasionally veer into lots of different areas, or you get this watered-down, sanitised version of them and their work, which personally, I've no interest in. So yes, when I'm not aligned to any political party, I am happy to out myself as a bleeding-heart liberal snowflake. My point is, if you don't share my views... That's absolutely fine. My best friend and I hold very different allegiances. We spent years of our lives driving up and down the country discussing it. Not only is disagreeing healthy, it really does help fill in some very, very long and tedious drives. I only point this out as, while the story you're about to hear is sincerely fictitious, I'd imagine you might get a sousant of my beliefs when you hear it. And by the way, If right now you're outraged and are no longer going to buy any of my books, etc, etc, that's absolutely fine. Although I wouldn't ask the question as to which one of us you really think is a snowflake if you can't cope with someone disagreeing with you. Now that's out of the way, it's time to introduce this week's highly agreeable narrator, Toby Haydock. He is both a good friend of mine and a Manchester institution, being as he is the MC and beating heart of the wonderful Excess Malarkey Comedy Club in Manchester, a place which helped foster numerous big names of British comedy, not to mention also being the club which gave me my first ever trip to the city. I drove up from London with my politically disagreeable friend to do 10-minute spots. At least that was the plan. The reality was we got caught in traffic thanks to a motorway being shut and Toby had to fill in for over an hour stalling for us to arrive and ever since then we have been firm friends. Toby is a comedian, presenter, actor, narrator and Olympian standard Whovian So much so that he's actually appeared on the extras of many Doctor Who DVDs, as well as producing wonderful comedy shows on the subject. He's a truly lovely guy and a wonderful narrator, who when I decided to do this podcast was literally the first person I called. So, without further ado, here is Toby Haydock reading the story, Yes, Prime Minister. They walked in silence save for the sound of their footsteps echoing down into the darkness. Everybody knew that there were tunnels under Whitehall. They were part of the Winston Churchill legend after all. This wasn't one of those. This was long, and it seemed to stretch down indefinitely, quite possibly by design. It had those motion-sensing lights, so as they descended at a steady 20-degree gradient, Lights came on to illuminate the ten feet in front of them, and then shut off as they passed, 
so they could see only ten feet behind them. The walls were tiled, and the floor a modern-looking concrete. Charlie wondered who built this tunnel. But come to that, who even knew it was here? Not that any of that mattered. Charlie knew when somebody was trying to intimidate him. He liked it. He may be a political operative these days, but he'd been a city boy after Cambridge. He liked nothing more than a good fight. It was why the boss had dialed him up and asked him to come on board. Be his man behind the man. The man in question, after a couple of near misses, was now PM, and Charlie was part of the crew he'd brought in to shake things up. Sure, have the faces as ministers out front to play to the cameras and handle all the tub-thumping stuff, but you needed your crack troops behind the scenes to actually get things done. All the talk of weirdos and misfits was fun for the press, and it played into the maverick image that the PM was going for. But when it got down to it, you needed bodies about you that you could really trust. The boss brought some of the old boys in to answer directly to him. Be the power without the PR bullshit. That had been the pitch. Charlie had no interest in kissing babies and eating the amount of rubber chicken required to become an MP. But being the PM's attack dog? That had sounded like bloody good fun. Plus, the cut in salary would be made up for in other ways. People liked to know people. It was the way of the world. They kept walking. Sir Humphreys moved silently beside him in perfect lockstep. Until he'd taken the job, Charlie wouldn't have believed that such people still existed. Lifelong civil servants. The old Whitehall Mandarin. The guy looked older than death and was about as much fun. He was carrying an umbrella, for God's sake, despite them being who knew how many hundred feet underground. Odds were that he'd only recently given in and foregone the pleasures of the bowler hat as a concession to modern times. The PM insisted that Charlie be present when Sir Humphreys delivered his briefing. It said something for the old duffer's stilted delivery that he managed to make the most shocking revelations you could hear in your life somehow boring. There had been rumours, of course. You heard them in lots of different places, but Charlie had mostly dismissed it all as urban myth, nonsense made up by conspiracy theorists in tinfoil hats. At least he had, up until that day. They'd sat there as the tedious old git had explained that there really were powerful people in the shadows, although people was probably not the right word. They'd not known what to think at first. According to Sir Humphreys, they'd been here for hundreds of years, and systems were in place to deal with it all. As far as he was concerned, the PM needed to know enough to stay well enough away and let things continue to run, as they always had. There were non-elected people in place who dealt with this kind of thing. The Sir Humphreys of this world. The PM, being the PM, demanded to see more details, and he'd eventually been given them. It was incredible, the amount of obfuscation and obstruction involved. It had taken all manner of threats until they had started to see at least some of the bigger picture. This plan, this meeting, had been Charlie's idea, but the PM leapt at it. They were fresh in the door and dealing with division and naysayers on all sides. They needed a big win, and they needed it fast. This was bold, the kind of idea Scruffy had brought him in for and Charlie was going to bloody well deliver. 
Sir Humphreys had hated the idea, at least as much as it was possible for him to do so. The old duffer was all but coated in a layer of dust, and he'd quite possibly not experienced an emotion since the eighties. The PM overruled his objections and sent Charlie as his envoy. So here he was. They'd been walking down this tunnel for a good ten minutes now. Charlie wasn't going to blink first. Humphreys would want him to get nervous, start asking how much further it would be. Charlie was having none of it. He would hold his head high and walk like a man. These people may have some interesting power of their own, but he was the right hand of the Prime Minister of Great Britain, and that came with a little power too, thank you very much. Sir Humphreys stopped, his leather shoes giving a tiny squeak as he did so. Charlie turned to him. Everything all right? We are here, said the man in the dull monotone he had where a voice should be. But how are we... Oh. Charlie turned and saw a door that he could have sworn wasn't behind him a second ago. Funny how a tunnel like this can play tricks with the mind. Yeah, all part of their games, no doubt. They'd probably try and pull a rabbit out of a hat before the end of the meeting. Sir Humphreys gave one of those non-cough coughs that were his little verbal tick. <coughs> Mr. Richards, call me Charlie. He loved saying that because it made Sir Humphreys uncomfortable, not least because he didn't want to reciprocate the gesture. Scruffy joked that he thought the old bastard probably didn't have a first name. His own wife almost certainly referred to him as Sir Humphreys. <laughs> he and Charlie spent a good ten minutes over some scotch riffing on dear old Sir Humphreys' sex life. I have arrived, Mrs. Humphreys. Thank you for your service. You are most welcome, Sir Humphreys. Tea? Charlie, continued Sir Humphreys awkwardly, I should like to take this final opportunity to strongly advise you against this course of action. These people do not take kindly to... Yes, yes, yes. We've been through all of this with the PM already. These people may not take kindly to being challenged, but from what I can see, all they do is take. This is about one hand washing the other. We do a lot for them. We're just asking for a little something in return. Charlie rolled his head around his shoulders and turned to the door. Now let's bloody do this, shall we? He went to put his hand on the door handle. Wait! Sir Humphreys moved quickly beside him and knocked on the door three times. There are protocols. With an effort, Charlie turned his head so he couldn't be seen rolling his eyes. The sooner all these ludicrous old farts got booted out, the better. This was the 21st century, after all. Whitehall was an archaic maze of pointless procedure and red tape. The whole shambles was an embarrassment. They stood there for a long moment, until a female voice from inside said, Enter. Sir Humphreys got to the door handle just ahead of Charlie and pushed the door open. The room had the dimensions of a decent-sized study. Tapestries lined the walls, and the floor was covered with what looked like an antique Persian rug. In places, Charlie could see the walls, or rather, the rock that the room was carved from. In the centre sat a large wooden table of a deep red varnished mahogany. Behind it, to Charlie's surprise, sat an Asian woman who didn't look much beyond thirty. She looked incongruous, sitting under the stuffed moose head that hung on the wall above her, 
When he'd ran through the meeting in his mind, Charlie had expected to be sitting opposite an old white dude. Instead, she sat there, two mobile phones placed at her right hand and wearing a smart business suit. Was this some calculated form of disrespect, sending a junior to listen to Charlie's proposal? Uh, well, two could play at that game. The PM had been very clear. Charlie was under instruction to come in here and play hardball. Wanting someone to come in hard and fast was why you sent Charlie Richards to do the job. He was the PM's pit bull. And if he needed to rip this woman to shreds to get his point across, then that is what he would do. In the left-hand corner of the room, an elderly lady was asleep in a leather armchair. A trolley covered in a sheet sat beside her. She was dressed like the dinner ladies they'd had back at school. Sir Humphreys stepped forward and gave an elaborate bow. Lady Vazor. She nodded without getting up. Sir Humphreys. Charlie reached forward and extended his hand across the desk. Charlie Richards. Lady Vesor did not move, but looked at his hand like he was trying to present her with a dead fish. After a long moment, she spoke. Yes, I am aware of who you are. Please take a seat. Charlie smiled as he sat down. Sir Humphreys took a seat beside the door. Friendly start to proceedings. Charlie was used to a frosty reception. He used to go out trawling for skirt in London Fashion Week. Nobody can give that disgusted-with-what-they-ordered look quite like an anorexic supermodel. Is the old dear all right? Charlie nodded towards the slumbering woman. She is fine, just resting. The slight upturn in her nose indicated she considered Charlie's question somehow rude. She had piercing blue eyes and a slim build. Even seated, Charlie could tell the suit was well-tailored. Savile Row, he'd wager. Normally these meetings are only with Sir Humphreys. Yes, said Charlie, but as I'm sure you are aware, Britain is under new management. She gave a tight smile. Is it? And what exactly are you seeking from the people I represent? Well, for a start, I'd like to know I'm meeting with someone from the top of the tree. Her face tightened into an offended squint. If the person on the other side of this desk was a man, would you be asking to see his credentials? Charlie rolled his eyes. With all due respect, I'm here representing the office of the Prime Minister. I have no idea who you are. The people I represent have made a habit out of people not knowing who we are. That is rather the point. Sir Humphreys cleared his throat and spoke up. I assure you, Mr Richards, Lady Vesor has always spoken for her organisation. Charlie nodded. OK, great. That's all I wanted to know. I'm glad we were able to clear that up for you. If looks could kill, Charlie was pretty sure he'd be a smouldering pile of ash right now. Good. It always paid dividends to knock your opponent off their stride. Emotional people made bad decisions. So, Mr Richards, what can we do for you? Well, said Charlie, reaching his hand into the inside pocket of his suit, before we get to that, I'd like to discuss what we do for you. He unfolded the sheet of A4 paper full of information that he'd all but had to beat out of Sir Humphreys. He cleared his throat and began reading from it. In the last year that I know of, he added pointedly, he was sure that if he'd held Sir Humphreys' feet to the fire, there was still a lot more he wasn't being told. 
We, the British government, have assisted you in uh, closing off the area of Aberdeen for what we claimed was a gas leak so that one of your specialist teams could deal with something. Uh, the army was called in to deal with an incident in Bath that resulted in, and I'm quoting here, two people becoming ill, resulting in the deaths of three other people. In Belfast, the port had to be shut down for two days, costing Lord knows how much in losses to the economy. We designated a 100-acre site in the Scottish Highlands as an MOD testing facility, despite the fact that no MOD employee has ever been there. Apparently this is due to what the report refers to as a bottomless hole appearing on the side of a mountain. In Bradford, the army had to carry out a controlled explosion on a suspect device. From what I can gather, the device in question had tentacles. Now, the clean-up alone, Lady Vesor looked at her fingernails, painted an immaculate blood red. Is there a point to this? Yes, said Charlie, there is. It appears we are doing an awful lot for you. Would you rather the thing with tentacles was allowed to roam freely in Bradford? I'd rather it wasn't an issue in the first place. Lady Vesor leaned back in her chair. You seem to be making the mistaken assumption that rain is caused by umbrella salesmen. Our role here is to control things that neither we nor you want the general public to be aware of. We have always worked with government to achieve this goal. Yes, said Charlie, and you also appear to have complete and total access to our intelligence infrastructure. He noticed only the subtlest of reactions to that one. It had been an educated guess, but it landed. To do what they did, they must have all kinds of illegal back doors. Can we move this along? I assume you have come here with a list of demands? Charlie refolded the piece of paper slowly before placing it back in his inside pocket. In a moment, said Charlie, giving his best winning smile. But first, this bottomless hole. The country has some waste it could really do with getting shot of. Any chance we could... He left it hanging. That depends, said Lady Vesor. <laughs> On what? On how keen you are to see the entire fabric of reality ripped asunder. Charlie shrugged. Mm. Ask me again on Friday. Charlie smiled at his own joke. Vesor did not. It struck Charlie that she was an attractive woman in an ice-bitch-from-hell sort of way. <laughs> this could develop into one almighty hate-fuck. They locked eyes. Charlie held her gaze. He couldn't blink first. Ten, twenty, thirty seconds passed. It dawned on him that while he wasn't metaphorically going to blink, it appeared this woman didn't actually physically blink. Was that even humanly possible? It wasn't, of course. That question relied on the assumption that the individual in question was actually human. Charlie flinched. Vesor's two eyes remained steadfastly locked with his, but in his mind, the image of his sister's friend Tilly suddenly flashed. Not just the image, but the smell of her perfume. A brief snatch of words, the briefest memory of that night. 
Charlie's sister didn't speak to him anymore because of the bullshit Tilly had told her. He hadn't... Charlie shook his head and looked down on the floor. When he looked back up, Lady Vasor raised an eyebrow and smiled at him. Will there be anything else? Oh, said Charlie. We're just getting started. He wasn't going to be intimidated by silly parlour tricks. I see, said Vasor. We are at a crucial turning point in this country's glorious history. Aren't we always? Charlie gave a tight smile. Not like this. We are heading into some make-or-break negotiations with our so-called allies. We would like your assistance with that. She actually laughed. <laughs> we do not involve ourselves in politics. She said the last word like she'd just been asked to nip around number ten and give the lose a good once-over. You do now. No, she said. There are agreements in place. Rules. We are redefining the rules, said Charlie. These are not your rules. It is very simple. Are you with us or against us? Lady Vasor looked up at the ceiling. There is nothing more dangerous than a man who believes something is very simple. Nice, said Charlie. You should print that on a T-shirt. Meanwhile, in the real world, we need your side to start pulling its weight. She looked down at him again. We do not have a side, and we will not do what you are asking. Fine, said Charlie, uncrossing his legs as if getting ready to leave. If that's your decision, so be it. You should know. The PM has informed me that if you will not assist with this, he's withdrawing all cooperation from the British government, uh, by which I mean the military, the police, and the Secret Service. We'll also tell our friends in the newspapers, who apparently have a long-standing understanding regarding your issues, that all restrictions are now lifted. Maybe it's time the world knew the truth. Both of her eyebrows shot up, the nearest the woman had come to showing any actual emotion so far in the exchange. Just so we are absolutely clear, are you trying to blackmail us? Charlie scoffed. Blackmail? Oh, please. We're merely trying to get a little something in return for everything we give you. You are blundering in here without the slightest understanding of what... She was interrupted by Charlie standing up. Where are you going? Well, if your answer is no, then I see no point in me sitting here while you lecture me. I'd think very carefully about what you're about to do, Mr. Richards. You are about to make some powerful enemies. He shrugged. That's pretty much my job description. He turned and walked towards the door. Sir Humphreys sat beside it, a look on his face of undisguised horror. Charlie smiled at him. He got all the way to putting his hand on the doorknob. Wait! He turned to look at Lady Vasor. She attempted to smile at him. Perhaps we may be of some assistance. Charlie stood there, grinning at her. See? Now is that so hard? He turned and ambled back, retaking his seat. Can I interest you in some tea? That would be lovely. Lady Vesor turned to the woman still dozing on the leather chair in the corner. Mrs. Oleander? The Prime Minister sat behind his desk and looked expectantly at them. Well? Charlie let a smile spread across his face. I think we got them. 
The PM slammed his meaty fist onto the blotter pad. Bloody brilliant. Well done, Chazza. Uh, well done. Charlie held a hand up. Now, don't get too excited, Scruffy. We're not there yet. Normally, the PM hated anyone using the nickname in the presence of others, but such was his excitement that he let it go. But we'll get him. You reckon we'll get him? Charlie nodded. I think so. He rubbed his hands together gleefully. Brilliant. Cracking job. I knew it. I bloody knew it. These people, whatever else they are, are British. I knew they'd rally round the flag. All this nonsense about them being untouchable was guff. The PM glanced in Sir Humphrey's direction, who was standing a few feet behind Charlie. He'd be toddling off to his retirement cottage in the Cotswolds by the end of the week if Charlie was any judge. Uh, so, said the PM, half turning in his chair, what's the next step? Uh, they want to talk to you. Right, uh, got something in the diary, did we? Uh, no, said Charlie. I pushed her on it, but they said they'd be in touch in their own way. Her? Yeah, they sent a woman. Ha! barked the PM. Your speciality, Chaz. He turned to Sir Humphreys. You should have seen this beast working on the lovelies in college. Man was a machine. Absolute pussy monster. Charlie didn't need to turn around. He could feel Sir Humphreys cringing behind him. Quite, came the barely audible response. So, said the PM, when do you reckon they'll be in contact? Charlie went to speak, but something caught in his throat. He held up a hand. You all right there, Chaz? I... He couldn't get any other words out. His throat felt like it was contracting, like invisible hands were wrapped around it, restricting his air supply. Chaz! Charlie felt the world tilting on its axis, black spots blotting his vision. His legs gave way beneath him, but he did not fall. He tried to move his arms, but they didn't respond. His vision cleared and he looked at the Prime Minister, gawping at him, dumbfounded. Charlie felt himself rise in the air until some kind of lighting fixture bumped against the back of his head. He wanted to panic, to scream, to thrash about, but he appeared not to be in control of any of the parts of his body required to do those things. He looked down as the PM stared up at him, open-mouthed. A weird memory popped into his head. The time he had tried on a virtual reality helmet when a brother of one of the guys had been looking for seed capital. That idea of being in another space, only not there and not there. Charlie felt that now, only with his own body. He was somehow relegated to the role of passenger. He felt his mouth move and a voice come out that was not his. It had a growling edge to it and a much deeper register. There was an odd sensation, as if the vibration of the words came more from Charlie's stomach than his throat. We will talk now. Charlie, what the... The voice made an odd hacking noise. Was it... was it laughing? This is not Charlie. Charlie can't come to the phone right now. The PM jabbed a finger at him. Let him go, you hear me? Let him go. The voice continued to speak. We wish to clarify our relationship. You will do exactly as we say. Don't you threaten me, said the PM, his voice rising a full octave. The distant part of Charlie's mind that watched on felt this might not be the best tack to take. We are not threatening. We are 
explaining. Charlie was aware of motion and then two members of the PM's close protection team were on top of Scruffy, pushing him back towards the hall. One threw his body over him while the other stood, sidearm drawn. Do not move! Do not move! He screamed. It was the ginger guy, Brooks, wasn't it? Ex-squaddy, seen an awful lot of action. He'd been with the PM since a couple of years before he'd got this job. Charlie had chatted to him a few times, killing time at some reception or other. Spurs fan, didn't think much of the manager. He currently had his handgun out and was pointing it at Charlie. For all he must have seen in Afghanistan and elsewhere, the man looked absolutely petrified. The voice carried on speaking, ignoring the gun pointed at it and the shouted instructions. Something about it seemed able to carry on over any other noise. This is your one and only warning. Do not attempt to threaten us again. All right, said the PM, his voice now a muffled squeal due to the man lying on top of him. And then the room started to spin. Or rather, Charlie did. He watched as the 360 degrees tableau was presented to him. The PM behind his desk, the two close protection guys in front of, and in one case, on top of him. There were four other men fanned out across the room, guns drawn, gawping up at him. Sitting in the corner, his hands placed calmly on his lap, and a benign look on his face, sat Sir Humphreys. And then the world spun faster and faster. Voices screamed, but Charlie could not make out any words. It was all a blur, a kaleidoscope of sickeningly warped colour and sound. And then it stopped. The second last thing Charlie saw was Sir Humphreys giving him a tight smile as he opened his umbrella. The last thing he saw was bloody meat flying in all directions. Just before the bit of Charlie that did the thinking stopped doing it, he realised that the meat was him. The room fell silent, sort of. Nobody spoke, but there was the occasional sound of some of the larger parts of Charlie Richards sliding down the walls, now that gravity was once again the main force acting upon them. Sir Humphreys closed his umbrella and stood taking a quick step to his left to avoid one of the gore-covered close protection officers hunched over as he released his lunch back into the world. While the umbrella had borne the brunt of it, the legs of his suit were ruined and his brogues would need a considerable amount of spit and polish. Most of what had been Charlie had been hurled outwards by the centrifugal force, so the rug in the centre of the room was remarkably untouched given what surrounded it. The wallpaper... In contrast, was a mess. The outline of the agents burnt into it like Hiroshima shadows, although the agents had lived through the experience. Sir Humphreys shook his umbrella and then walked swiftly across the floor. The lead agent, Brooks, stood dumbfounded behind the desk, pointing his sidearm at the spot in the air that Charlie Richards no longer occupied. In fact, it was one of the few spots in the room that now contained none of him. Sir Humphreys craned his head to look past Brooks. Prime Minister, the agent who had thrown himself on top of the PM, clambered off him, now that the threat was gone. The country's leader looked up at Sir Humphreys, a dazed expression on his face. Ah, there you are. You are well, I trust. The PM gawped at Sir Humphreys as if he was speaking to him in a foreign language. The man was famously unwilling to speak any language but English or Latin 
a classic education, seemed to do that to a certain ilk of Englishmen. Sir Humphreys cleared his throat. Shall I inform certain individuals that things shall go back to normal? The PM nodded his head emphatically. Excellent. I think that would be best. I will see to it forthwith. Sir Humphreys turned to go, but stopped himself. Oh, and one final thing, Prime Minister. Should you ever meet them, I do strongly advise you don't drink the tea. Thank you for listening to the Stranger Times podcast. If you've enjoyed it, then please leave a rating wherever you get your pods. It really does help. And the Stranger Times novel by C.K. MacDonald is out on January 14th, 2021 and is available to pre-order right now from all good bookshops and some bad ones. And check out thestrangertimes.com for more weird news and to sign up to the newsletter where you can also get yourself a sweet free ebook containing some Stranger Times short stories. This podcast is produced by Rob B at BEE with Ed Wilson exec producing and all materials are copyright McFory Inc. Limited. All the short stories are written by me, C.K. McDonald, and I also write the news with additional material by Sam Gore, Graham Goring, Cam Johnson, Mick Ferry, Scott Bennett, Andy White and Juliet Myers. The news is read by James Cook and the music is done by Alan McGuire with John McCullough as musical Sven Galley. Listener.